The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. I envision a style, said the author as he set out to write his novel, a style that would be beautiful, that someone will invent someday, ten years or ten centuries from now, one that would be rhythmic as verse, precise as the language of the sciences, undulant, deep-voiced as a cello, tipped with flame, a style that would pierce your idea like a dagger, and on which your thought would sail easily ahead over a smooth surface, like a skiff before a good tailwind. The result, after five long years of labor, was a masterpiece, Madame Bovary. With the wind at our backs, we sail into the world of Gustave Flaubert, the Frenchman who changed everything, today on The History of Literature. Hello, hello, hello. I'm Jack Wilson, squeezing the last drops out of October and deciding that this year I'll extend October two weeks into November. Why not? November has Thanksgiving. Surely it won't mind my taking a couple of weeks off its hands when the weather is this gorgeous and the trees are displaying their frozen flames. I can't resist. I hope you're doing well too, dear listeners. So, Today is a good one. I've resisted Flaubert, but I shall resist no longer. My earlier episode on Madame Bovary is way back in the archives, somewhere in the first 100, and one of the most popular episodes I've ever done. But, spoiler alert, that episode is more about me and my story than it is about Flaubert. It's the story of my journey through Tibet with only a copy of Madame Bovary and how all that worked out. Another spoiler alert. Not great. <laughs> or actually great. <laughs> You'll have to listen. Anyway, it's time to return to Flaubert and his wonderful novel and give him and the novel room to breathe without also worrying that I'm going to die in the thin air of Tibet next to a broken down truck. So here's what we're going to cover today. Once again, I had a kind of panic attack thinking about how many episodes we could do just on Flaubert. His letters alone could fill a year's worth of episodes. Maybe we'll have to do a few just on his letters, but we're going to do Gustave Flaubert in one episode so we can cover some other writers too. We have a lot on our list. Maya Angelou, hopefully next. Rabindranath Tagore coming up. Here's what we have. I made a for uh, Flaubert. I made a list of ten areas to cover. They are as follow. I just jotted these down. I gotta limit myself. We gotta have some structure. What do we have to cover? Here's what I have: one, childhood; two, temperament slash personality; three, career; four, relationships; five, motivation. What made that man tick? Six, literary context. How do we think about him, his artistry, his innovation, etc.? Seven, key works, Madame Bovary, clearly. Eight, everything else. What else did he write? Nine, reception at the time. Ten, legacy slash today. 
It's a pretty good tan. Reminds me of the Persia gimmick I learned in high school history class. You know, the Persia gimmick? Politics, economics, religion, social, or society, intellectual, artistic. P-E-R-S-I-A, name those six things about a nation or an age or an era or a culture, and you might not get everything, but you're off to a pretty good start. Well, looking at my 10, I might need to tweak them a bit so I can give them a nifty acronym. Doesn't spell anything out like Persia. Right now it's Kitakumral Curl, which is no good, but I like these 10. I'm going to see if I can use them for our Subsequent authors, too. Maybe Maya Angelou will get the Kitakermal Curl treatment. And we can together enjoy this structure. So let's get on with the structure, shall we? Who are we kidding? (laughs) Use this for multiple episodes. We'll be lucky if we make it through one episode the way we do things around here. Structures are made to be destroyed, or at least some are. If it's a ladder, fine. If it's a prison, who needs it? On to number one, childhood. Flaubert was born in December of 1821. For literary context, that makes him about 20 years younger than Victor Hugo, whom he was later to befriend in Paris. Flaubert was nine years younger than Charles Dickens, and as we'll see, he's quite a different type of writer. He's 17 years younger than George Sand, another great friend of his. He was born the same year as Charles Baudelaire who will make a return appearance in our story. Flaubert's influence can best be seen on the next generation of novelists. Henry James, for example, was born 20 years later. Madame Bovary is a masterpiece, James said, graciously unique. It could never have been written in English. Flaubert himself had a, quote, powerful, serious, melancholy, manly, deeply corrupted, yet not corrupting nature, end quote. Politically, the world in which Flaubert was born was post-empire, but the post has <laughs> not been very long. The revolution was just two generations ahead of Flaubert, about 40 years, but in living memory, clearly, his father had been five years old when the revolution broke out. He was living in Champagne, much like me in my 20s. Just kidding. I was in Old Balvenny Doublewood then. I was I was I wasn't in much celebratory beverage. I was in big cups of iced coffee and munching chocolate covered espresso beans. Napoleon died the same year that Flaubert was born. His empire was only six or seven years gone. The Bourbons had returned to the throne. Flaubert's father moved the family to Rouen which is where young Gustave was born. Rouen is a city in Normandy, northwest of Paris, by about 90 miles, not too far. It's also on the River Seine. Very, very significantly for our story, Flaubert's father was a surgeon, a highly successful one, director and senior surgeon of the biggest hospital in Rouen. One of his medical students had an interesting life I'll tell you about. He was himself kind of dull. This student, he married once, but his first wife died, and then he remarried a few years later to a younger woman named Delphine. 
Delphine, so bored with her life as a housewife, finding her husband a total nullity, took several lovers and eventually drank prussic acid, or what we now call hydrogen cyanide. She died in 1848. Her life story became public thanks to an article in the Journal de Rouen, published that same year, 1848, and her husband, Eugene, died a year later, probably from grief and embarrassment and shame. Once again, this was very close to Gustave. Eugene had been his father's student. Flaubert started writing Madame Bovary a few years after that, and after five years, he was finished. Famously, he said, Madame Bovary, c'est moi, inspiration. Madame Bovary is me. But Delphine had a lot to do with it, too. Flaubert's mother was the daughter of a doctor from a neighboring town famous for its cheese. He was devoted to her, Flaubert was, Gustave was, and would be so all his life. But she has been described by biographers as cold to the point of being glacial, quote-unquote. Flaubert grew up in a household of distinction and privilege. We can call them the provincial bourgeoisie, as biographers do, although that word is a loaded one for Flaubert. He came to detest the bourgeois and frequently mocked them. But his anger at them seemed less about class struggle. Karl Marx, who had been born a couple of years before Flaubert, was a reader of Flaubert, not the other way around, as far as I know. Flaubert's anger was more about a hatred of character traits like pomposity and smugness and prudery. When he was a teenager, he and a schoolmate wrote about accepted ideas as put forth in newspapers and journals and which made everyone who adopted them seem vaguely intelligent without truly understanding anything. Flaubert hated pretension. He detested provinciality, nationalism, unthinking patriotism. And now we're getting into topic number two, personality. So let's wrap up the childhood by saying that Flaubert was a decent student known for his facility with writing. Even at a young age, he was cranking out stories at the age of eight and was soon writing plays and short novels to romantic and lyrical. This was the age of Balzac and Sir Walter Scott. He was also collecting his ideas, attacking the bourgeois around him. And although he grew up surrounded by doctors and surgeons and hospitals and medical treatments, in fact, he and his siblings spent their early years living in a wing of his father's hospital. In spite of all that medicine, he decided to study law. And at the age of 19, he moved to Paris and enrolled as a student there, a law student. But clearly his heart was already in literature. Art is superior to everything. He said at age 17, a book of poetry is worth more than a railway. That's an interesting idea. Which railway, I suppose? There are some railways I don't care too much about, don't do too much. Other railways, pretty cool, pretty essential. Also depends on which book of poetry. Maybe we'll do an episode on this. Which railways would we give up for which books of poetry? Moving on. 
Let's move to our second category, temperament and personality. Flaubert was known for being shy, but also sensitive and haughty. From an early age, he was fastidious and artistically exacting. When he began writing his books, he became very famous for his monk-like devotion to writing, agonizing over each page, each sentence, each word. He seems to have imported some of this into his life as well. He was demanding and he could be cold. At the same time, he had a kind of gusto for living, including many trips to brothels and visits to prostitutes. Not just women. Saw some young men, especially during his trip to Egypt. It made me laugh, he wrote to his friend after having sex with a a bath boy, was called, hopefully above the age of 18. He said, it made me laugh, that's all, but I'll be at it again. To be done well, an experiment must be repeated. He also watched an exotic dancer when he was on that trip, and then he slept with her amid the cockroaches. Lots of visits to prostitutes in Flaubert's life. He was still writing. Also, his best early work was about a young man falling in love with a prostitute. Henry James noted that Flaubert's life was full of more failures than successes. James thought it was a problem with Flaubert's inability to commit. Although he had affairs and these trips to the brothel, he never married. His true mistress was his art, his perfectionism, which we'll dive into later. James viewed Flaubert as a cautionary tale. But as we've seen in past episodes, it's not necessarily a a muddle that James truly solved for himself either. A devotion to art at the expense of life, at the expense of embracing life, at the expense of living. James saw it in Flaubert and also saw it when he looked into a mirror. Our three-part episode on The Beast in the Jungle talks all about that. Flaubert was pessimistic. His best friend as a schoolboy was a pessimistic philosopher. The two of them wrote down ideas that stupid people thought were smart. Here's a snippet from the Dictionary of Received Ideas that Flaubert compiled. Entry for budget is never balanced. Catholicism has had a very good influence on art. Christianity freed the slaves. Crusades benefited Venetian trade. You can see how this is. What's important about the Crusades? Well, lots of things. But it takes a particular kind of conventional wisdom to just sniff your nose and say, oh, yes, the Crusades. You know, they benefited Venetian trade. Well, maybe that's true in part. But when a whole society full of people delivers that as, oh, guess what? You know what happens. You know what happened. They all read the same article that made that point, and then they want to say that, and in a way, fine, you know a little fact, but in another way, a bigger way, a more important way, you're missing the big picture with your little fact. That's what this book is about. Diamonds. The entry is, to think that they're nothing but coal. If we came across one in its natural state, we wouldn't even bother to pick it up off the ground. (laughs) You can imagine hearing people say that more than once, multiple times, and then you just think, oh, you people, you sheep, 
Is that all you can think? Same thing everyone else thinks? You're getting it from the newspaper. You're getting it from the journal. Exercise. Prevents all illnesses to be recommended at all times. Photography. Will make painting obsolete. You can hear the sneering, mocking tone. It's more negative than positive, that tone. But when conventional wisdom is so entrenched, sometimes you need to be negative in order to find room to build. The field needs to be cleared before you can plant fresh crops. The house needs to be leveled. The forest needs a good wildfire. That was Flaubert's approach. Quote, there are gestures, sounds of people's voices that I cannot get over. Silly remarks that almost give me vertigo. The bourgeois is for me something unfathomable, end quote. Look at all these stupid people. Flaubert's often called them misanthropists. Look at all these stupid people who think they're smart. Let's point out how stupid they are. And when it comes time to write, we can write about their stupidity, but not just to tear them down. There's a bigger point here. We want to show how cruel and arbitrary and toxic their ideas are. They impose a kind of straitjacket on people who want nothing more than to find happiness and love and a feeling of embracing life. These ideas also lead to jingoism and racism and complacency. They're a substitute for actual thought. One of the more appealing facets of Flaubert's character is his desire to be great-souled. Although he's viewed now as a quintessential Frenchman, that's not how he viewed himself. Quote, I'm no more modern than ancient, no more French than Chinese, and the idea of a native country, that is to say, the imperative to live on one bit of ground marked red or blue on the map, and to hate the other bits in green or black, has always seemed to me narrow-minded, blinkered, and profoundly stupid. I am a sole brother to everything that lives, to the giraffe and the crocodile as much as to man, end quote. We think of Flaubert as serious to the point of sterility, the guy who spent 12 hours at his desk composing a single sentence and so on. But his life was full of grand impulses and gestures and also humor. He once wrote in a letter to his girlfriend, quote, What stops me from taking myself seriously, even though I'm essentially a serious person, is that I find myself extremely ridiculous. Not the kind of small-scale ridiculousness of slapstick comedy, but rather a ridiculousness that seems intrinsic to human life and manifests itself in the simplest actions and most ordinary gestures. For example, I can never shave without starting to laugh. It seems so idiotic. All this is very difficult to explain. End quote. Flaubert aged fast thanks to epilepsy and syphilis and smoking his pipe like crazy. He went bald early and gained weight. I'm the sort of man whom whores wince at when it comes to the shagging. He once joked, although I'm not sure how much of a joke that was. I suspect given his irritation with the bourgeois, there was some self-hatred in what he had become, appearance-wise. His biographer Jeffrey Wald noted the contradiction, the absurd indignity of being, quote, a romantic anarchist with a modest private income, end quote. Let's pause here and take our first break. We will be back with numbers three through ten in our list of kitkermal 
curl. Boy, do we need a new acronym for that. We're, we're through the cut with caramel curl left. That almost looks like caramel corn to me. Kernels of caramel corn. Maybe that's where this is headed. Stay tuned, people. Not for that, but for Flaubert after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. We are back with number three on our list, career. This won't take too long. He didn't really have one other than writing. His father was successful and made wise investment investments. investments. Flaubert studied law, as I mentioned, but he dropped out after a couple of years when he was diagnosed with a nervous disorder. It was considered epilepsy, even though he didn't have all the symptoms of that disease. Most likely, he wasn't as into the law as he was the vocation of being an author. He already viewed that as his calling. He didn't need the money and was free to write what he wanted, which was good for him, I think, because he wrote his best books very slowly, and as we'll see, they were subject to potential censorship, not something you would do if you were writing for the market. Some of his later works did not sell well. All in all, he was fortunate to have the family money unless we want to go down the road of what-ifs and imagine that a bit of writing for the marketplace might have been good for him, might have made some of his works more appealing, might have encouraged him to work a little faster, which might have been good for him psychologically, but we don't need to go there, do we, since we already have writers like Balzac who are cranking out prose by the tonnage to satisfy debts. Having an author free from the vicissitudes of the marketplace is a good thing, I think. It let him follow his art. It also allowed him to travel. He went to Greece and Egypt and Beirut and Istanbul. He went to Carthage, too. He tried all of his life to write about some of these places with mixed success. His travels also took him from Rouen to Paris, of course, and occasionally to England. In the end, his career outlook was of someone who was playing the long game. A publisher once said, Hey, 
oh, this is good. You've written this. There's a market for this book now. It's a favorable moment. And Flaubert responded to that phrase with indignance. It may well be that from a commercial point of view, there are favorable moments, a ready market for one kind of article or another. Let those who wish to manufacture those things hasten to set up their factories. I well understand that they should. But if your work of art is good, if it is authentic, its echo will be heard. It will find its place in six months, six years, or after you're gone. What difference does it make? End quote. That's a man who doesn't need to worry about money. Item number four, relationships. Let's start with his family, then move to the literary, then run through the lovers. Flaubert's father died in 1846 when Gustave was in his early 20s. He helped take care of his mother after that until she died when he was 50. His own health started to decline soon thereafter. A niece was there to take care of him, but his, her husband ran into problems with his business, and financially that started to drag Gustav down too. He died of a cerebral hemorrhage at the age of 58. As for literary relationships, mostly these were carried on through letters, although he did make appearances at Parisian salons, and he enjoyed visiting with Zola Turgenev, who was living in Paris, and the Goncourt brothers. He had a close relationship with George Sand, who liked to pretend that Flaubert's pessimism was something of an act. This man who is so kind, so friendly, so cheerful, so simple, so congenial, why does he want to discourage us from living? She wondered. Younger French writers revered Flaubert. Maupassant viewed him viewed himself as Flaubert's disciple. Aside from the prostitutes, Flaubert said, hey, about prostitution, Flaubert said, hey, this might be a perversity on my part, but I love prostitution and not just for the carnality. Suggesting what? What do we make of that? Suggesting he appreciated companionship, maybe, that he found there, but I think what he probably meant is he enjoyed the transactional nature that brought along an absence of commitment. No strings attached. Pay your money, get out. Aside from those relationships, the relationships with prostitutes, such as they were, he had one real love affair in his life with the poet Louise Collet. The two of them met in unusual circumstances at a sculptor's studio. Louise Collet was of great beauty and had been asked to pose for a statue that Flaubert had commissioned of his sister, a bust that he was having made. His sister had died, and he had commissioned a bust of her head. While she was posing, Flaubert arrived at the studio with his sister's death mask. He saw Louise Collet, and the two fell in love. For years, he wrote to her every morning. His letters to her are a literary treasure. He was writing Madame Bovary during much of their relationship, and the letters are filled with a kind of narrative of that novel coming to be, including descriptions of the work itself and the agonies that Flaubert was putting himself through. I want to write in a style as rhythmical as verse and as precise as the language of science, 
he said. He and Collet's relationship was, as far as we know, the one true physical love affair that Flaubert had. And it wasn't with a prostitute. I will cover you with love when next I see you, with caresses, with ecstasy. I want to gorge you with all the joys of the flesh so that you faint and die. I want you to be amazed by me and to confess to yourself that you had never even dreamed of such transports. When you are old, I want you to recall those few hours. I want your dry bones to quiver with joy when you think of them. End quote. Collet was herself successful. She had escaped a provincial life, too. Shades of Emma. Everywhere, it seems. By marrying an academic musician and moving to Paris. She won prizes for her poetry. She ran a salon that Victor Hugo attended. She had a daughter that no father ever claimed, neither her husband nor her lover. She had her own views of art. Flaubert said... There are no noble or ignoble subjects. There is no such thing as a subject, style in itself being an absolute manner of seeing things. End quote. Collet responded, No, no, that's wrong. Art should be an outpouring of strong personal emotion. And Flaubert said, This is the credo that made Flaubert Flaubert. Flaubert responded and said, quote, An author in his book must be like God in the universe, present everywhere and visible nowhere. End quote. Eventually, Flaubert soured on Louise Collet. They had a pregnancy scare which terrified him, and he eventually came to believe their relationship was sapping the energy he needed for his art. I love the roundness of your breasts, he said in his letters, even as he noted that a good night of writing was as fulfilling as a night of passionate lovemaking. He broke things off soon thereafter. I was told you rang several times, he said. I was not in, and I will never be in for you again. It's hard not to hear James's cautionary warning here. Let love slip by and you might not get another chance. But that was not Flaubert's fate. Love, he says, is only a superior kind of curiosity. But he had curiosity in abundance, artistic curiosity, curiosity for his creation, Madame Bovary, both the character and the book. We also learned years later that Flaubert had a young love named Elisa Schlesinger, whom he met when he was a teenager on vacation. I say young love. He was young. She was much older. Years later, he wrote, quote, I loved immeasurably a love that was unrequited, intense, and silent. Nights spent gazing at the moon, dreaming of elopements and travels in Italy, dreams of glory for her sake, torments of the body and the soul, spasm at the smell of a shoulder, and turning suddenly pale when I caught her eye. I have known all that and known it very well. Each one of us has in his heart a royal chamber." I have had mine bricked up, but it is still there. End quote. Elisa Schlesinger never knew that young Gustav Flaubert felt this way about her. She was told about it 35 years later. We can do numbers five and six together. Motivation. What did Flaubert want? Why was he writing? Well, it was number six. Literary context. Or 
artistry, innovation, that topic. Partly he was motivated by hatred of the bourgeois and a desire to poke holes in conventional wisdom and so on. But his primary motivation was to accomplish something artistic, to live up to the high standards, the high artistic standards that he had set for himself. His desire for artistic perfection is so strong in him, it feels like he's inventing it. We know it from, we're familiar with it from Joyce and other writers who came after Flaubert, but it's hard to think of a prose writer who agonized about his prose as much as Flaubert did. It's hard to think of one who came before him, who believed in les mots justes, or the right word. There are no synonyms, he said. Every word is different. You have to choose the correct one. The process of selection could be painful. He spent tons of money on paper and ink. His manuscripts have been described as looking like a battlefield. The same sentence written a dozen times or more, different words, a different order, crossed out, rewritten, chosen for their meaning, their content, their context, their sound, their balance. He would shout sentences out loud to test their rhythm. He spent 12 hours at his desk most days. A page in a week was par for the course. During one of the five years, he managed to finish 90 pages in a year. He said once, it takes more genius to say in proper style, close the door, or he wanted to sleep than to give all the literature courses in the world. This was ahead of its time. This was an age when novelists filled serial publications with big installments that were uh, portions of big books, what would become big books. When writers were writing, prose writers were writing in a large, magnanimous, profligate style, George Eliot, George Sand, Charles Dickens, Sir Walter Scott, Balzac, Victor Hugo. These are people who wrote fast and easy with words flowing out of their pen. A sentence was more like a conversation for them, like you might tell a friend as the two of you settle in front of a fireplace. That kind of chattiness, that kind of prose. For Flaubert, a sentence was like a good line of poetry, unchangeable, just as rhythmic, just as sonorous. The wrong word, he said in a letter, can disrupt the unity of several pages. Flaubert. Flaubert once spent three days making two corrections. He once admonished Maupassant, the nephew of an old friend, the younger writer who had sought out Flaubert, wanted to study at his feet. They had a correspondence, and Flaubert once that Maupassant complained that his life was monotonous, and Flaubert wrote back with passion, You must, do you hear me, young man? You must work more than you do. You were born to write poetry. Write it. All the rest is futile. All the rest is futile. No marriage, no children for Flaubert. It's art and art and art. That, I think, is what he meant when he said, Madame Bovary, c'est moi. He meant he was digging into himself, into his, the deepest 
recesses of his ability and desire and commitment, devotion to his art. His young niece grew up thinking that the word bovary was a synonym for the word work because her uncle would sigh and say, I have to get back to bovary now, like someone saying, it's time for me to descend into the coal mine. But in, or I have to go punch the clock. But in coal mines, under enough pressure, we find diamonds to risk being the kind of bourgeois thinker that Flaubert detested. And Madame Bovary is as dazzling as a gem or a star. Let's take our final break and come back with numbers 7 through 10. His key work, clearly Madame Bovary. His other works, The Reception and His Legacy. Madame Bovary's original title was Madame Bovary Provincial Manners. It was Flaubert's old lifelong obsession. It's been called monomania, documenting and disparaging the kind of close-minded thinking found in the respectable classes of small towns. The book begins with Charles Bovary, who starts life in Normandy, shy and oddly dressed, ridiculed by his classmates. He eventually becomes a doctor, though not a good one, and takes on a bureaucratic position. He marries a widow whom he thinks is rich. She's unpleasant, but Charles's mother has chosen her for him, and that's about as far as it goes. That's, a, that's enough for Charles. One day he goes to a local farm to set a broken leg and falls in love with the farmer's daughter, Emma. She's provincial too, but her mind has more room in it for dreams. Thanks in part to the popular novels she's been reading. She wants luxuries. She wants romance. Charles can't get enough of her. His wife dies, and Charles goes to court Emma. They attend a fabulous ball together where things come to a head, and they end up getting married. But married life proves to be dull. Emma has a child, but motherhood is boring, too. She starts looking to other men to supply what her marriage can't, namely excitement. One man in particular, a rakish landowner, decides that Emma will be easily seduced. Charles does not suspect him. In fact, Charles has been worried about her health and how listless she's been. So he encourages the two of them spending time together, and eventually Emma plunges into an affair and she insists that she and her lover run off together, but the night before they're supposed to go, the lover jilts her. She falls deathly ill. For a while, she becomes religious. She had originally been educated in a convent. She returns to religion at this point, but then she goes to the opera with Charles and falls in love with the idea of being in love, of embracing life once again. She then meets up with an old flame of sorts, a former student. She, not a student of hers, but a former student in the town that whom she once had a crush on. And they, the two of them have an affair. She ends up meeting him in a hotel in the city once a week while Charles thinks she's there taking piano lessons. 
Emma starts buying more clothes and finer things. Her boyfriend gets tired of her. She falls into debt and she goes to beg her former lovers to help her out. None of them will in the end. Spoiler alert. She swallows arsenic and dies an agonizing death. Her husband, Charles, is bereft, even though he is, she has basically ruined him. In the end, all his possessions are sold off to pay her debts, and their daughter is sent off to work in a cotton mill. As the last straw, the town pharmacist, who is kind of a know-nothing know-it-all, sets up Charles to fail, and he does fail, ending his, meta- his reputation, which ends his medical practice. It's a bleak outcome. Only a misanthrope like Flaubert could have devoted himself to it for so long. But such was all he could do. Quote, Personally, I deplore those sugary confections which readers swallow without realizing that they are quietly poisoning themselves. It had always been my belief that the novelist, like the traveler, enjoyed the liberty to describe what he saw. Following the example of many others, I could have chosen a subject drawn from the exceptional or ignoble ranks of society. I chose, on the contrary, from among the most prosaically ordinary. Readers in search of lascivious material will never progress beyond the third page of what I have written. The serious tone will not be to their taste. People do not go to watch surgical operations in a spirit of lubricity, end quote. Flaubert was right. The plot summary of Bovary is relentlessly bleak, and yet it has incredible poetry, incredible language, and it captures the joys of Emma Bovary, the temporary joys and the ineluctable longings. They give it a richness that make its melancholy a source of inspiration and uplift. It's like watching a tragedy or seeing a great painting of war. It's depressing. It's bleak. But you don't feel walled in and bombarded by unremitting pain. You feel opened up, joyful. Most of the book is told in an impersonal style, full of beautiful metaphors and perfect analogies. But in one of the asides, Flaubert allows himself to be lyrical and to be somewhat visible. The passage is justly famous. Human speech, he says, is like a cracked cauldron on which we beat out tunes for dancing bears when we long to move the stars to pity. End quote. Let's give you a taste of the book. Here's a section where Emma discusses morality with her would-be lover, Rodolphe. This is the first lover. They are together at an agricultural fair, when Rodolphe says, Why castigate the passions? Are they not the only beautiful thing there is on earth? The source of heroism, enthusiasm, poetry, music, art, and of everything. But we must sometimes, said Emma, heed the opinions of other people and accept their morality. Oh, the thing is, there are two moralities, he replied, the little conventional one that men have made up, one that's endlessly changing and that brays so fiercely, makes such a fuss down here in the world, like that mob of imbeciles you see there. But the other morality, the eternal one, is all about and above, like the fields around us and the blue sky that gives light. The two of them keep walking. 
He then says, Look at us, for instance. He said, Why did we meet? By what decree of fate? It must be because across the void, like two rivers irresistibly converging, our unique inclinations have been pushing us towards one another. And now he took her hand. She didn't take it back again. Later in the narrative, it says, Rodolph gripped her hand, and he felt it warm and trembling like a captive turtle dove that strives to take wing again. But whether she was trying to disentangle it or whether she was responding to his pressure, her fingers moved. He exclaimed, Oh, thank you. You are not repulsing me. You are so sweet. You realize that I am yours. Permit me to see you, to gaze upon you. They were looking at one another. A supreme desire set their parched lips trembling and soothingly, easily, their fingers entwined. Now Rodolphe bides his time for six weeks. He takes no action, letting her simmer. Then he arrives and states his case. Quote, Yes, I think continually of you. Memories of you break my heart. Oh, no, forgive me. I shall leave. Farewell. I shall go far away. So far that you will never hear tell of me again. And yet, today, some peculiar force drove me to you. Oh, why struggle against fate? Why resist the angels smiling? Why not yield to what is beautiful and charming and adorable? But... He continued, though I haven't visited you, though I could not see you, oh, I have at least communed deeply with things around you. In the night, every single night, I would leave my bed, make my way here and gaze upon your house, the roof shining in the moonlight, the trees in the garden swaying under your window, and a little lamp, a light shining through the windows in the shadow. You never knew that out there, so near and so far, there was a poor wretch. She turned to him with a sob. How good you are, she said. No, I love you. It's very simple. He then proposes that they go horse riding. She resists at first, but her clumsy, unsuspecting husband encourages her to go. They stop in a forest glade, and here is where it happens. Quote, in my soul you are like a Madonna on a pedestal, in a high place, secure and immaculate. But I need you to stay alive. I need your eyes, your voice, your thoughts. Be my friend, my sister, my angel. And he reached out his arm and put it around her waist. Gently she tried to free herself. He held her like this as they walked. But they heard the two horses cropping the leaves. Oh, not yet, said Rodolph. We're not going yet. Stay. He guided her further along, around a little pool, where the duckweed lay green on the surface. Rotting water lilies floated, stuck among the reeds. At the sound of their steps in the grass, frogs sprang away into hiding. I mustn't, I mustn't, she kept saying. I'm mad to listen to you. Why, Emma? Emma, oh, Rodolphe. Slowly the woman spoke his name, leaning on his shoulder. The woolen stuff of her dress caught on the velvet of his jacket. She stretched back her white neck, swelling with a sigh, and, swooning, 
blind with tears, with a deep shudder as she hid her face, she yielded. End quote. She comes home and her husband says, See, it did you good. You look so much healthier. And so we get this passage. Quote, But when she looked in the mirror, she was startled by her own face. Never had she had eyes so large, so black, so mysterious. Something subtle, transfiguring, was surging through her. She kept saying to herself, I have a lover, a lover. Savoring this idea just as if a second puberty had come upon her. At last she was to know the pleasures of love, that fever of happiness which she had despaired of. She was entering something marvelous where everything would be passion, ecstasy, delirium. End quote. There is sex here, and so there was scandal on, in this age where obscenity charges could be brought. The book was put on trial, as we'll see in a minute. But the real scandal, the real threat to established order, is in the breaking free of conventional morality. We talk a lot about Flaubert's style and his word choice and so on, and deservedly so, but we shouldn't forget that he was also a pioneer in realism. Scrupulous truth, warts and all, desires, longings, feelings of being trapped. It was there in life. It was there in literature. This was not a book to tell people to live life in a convent or as if they were in a convent. It was about society unfairly condemning those who wish to break free. Flaubert's other works were not as successful as Madame Bovary. He had topics he returned to throughout his life. He tried and retried to write The Temptation of St. Anthony. For days, he read a draft of the book aloud to his friends, telling them not to interrupt or offer any opinions. They sat and listened for four days as he read it. And then in the end, he finished, turned to them, and they had advised him to throw the manuscript in the fire. He spent forever on a book called Bouvard at Petcouchet, which was unfinished but posthumously printed. He thought it was his masterpiece, but very few people agree with that. More successfully, he wrote Sentimental Education, which is worth reading, and A Simple Heart, kind of an amazing novella about a servant girl and her parrot. He also spent years on a novel called Salambo, which is set in Carthage, and he seems to have wanted to write a book based on the Battle of Thermopylae. His friends wanted him to write about things in France, the domestic sphere, a la Bovary, but he seems to have always wanted to write a kind of travel narrative or romance. He also wrote a couple of plays that flopped. In the end, it's Bovary that gives us Flaubert at the peak of his powers and on which both his reputation and his legacy stand. We're up to numbers 9 and 10, if you haven't been keeping track. Bovary, first of all, was almost not published. Its publication was the subject of a trial, but Flaubert was acquitted, and the book was free to be published. In the end, Flaubert dedicated the book to his lawyer, announcing, Dear and illustrious friend, allow me to inscribe your name at the head of this book and above its dedication, for it is to you more than anyone else that I owe its publication. In passing through your magnificent pleas in court, my work has acquired, in my eyes, a kind of unexpected authority. 
I therefore ask you to accept here the tribute of my gratitude, which, however great it may be, will never reach the height of your eloquence or your devotion. Gustave Flaubert. Lucky lawyer. Not many lawyers get <laughs> most lawyers. Most lawyers don't get that kind of appreciation. Baudelaire didn't do so well. He his book, The Fleur de Mal, was on trial the same year on the same charges, and Baudelaire lost. Probably should have hired Flaubert's lawyer. Six of his poems were ordered to be removed from that book. In spite of the trial, or perhaps in part because of it, Flaubert became famous. By the time of his death, he was widely viewed as the most influential French realist. De Maupassant, Emile Zola, and eventually Proust, and Sartre, lots of French writers, all came to revere Flaubert and Madame Bovary. Henry James said, quote, Madame Bovary has a perfection that not only stamps it, but that makes it stand almost alone. It holds itself with such a supreme, unapproachable assurance as both excites and defies judgment, end quote. Proust said that its style, the book's style, had a kind of grammatical purity to it, and Nabokov gave it the accolade that Flaubert himself had always sought. Stylistically, said Nabokov, it is prose doing what poetry is supposed to do. Nabokov, in particular, is a worthwhile example. Along with Joyce, he perhaps stands as the greatest of sentence writers in the 20th century, those who believe in cadence and rhythm and the laborious search of perfection, the need for it. Without Flaubert, Joyce and Nabokov are hard to imagine. His true Penelope was Flaubert, as Ezra Pound once said about a character that was basically himself. And yet, Nabokov draws a link from Flaubert to Kafka that suggests this is more than just pyrotechnics, more than just a kind of updikian prose style, beautiful words, and not much to say. Nabokov says, quote, the greatest literary influence upon Kafka was Flaubert's. Flaubert, who loathed pretty, pretty prose, would have applauded Kafka's attitude towards his tool. Kafka liked to draw his terms from the language of law and science, giving them a kind of ironic precision with no intrusion of the author's private sentiments. This was exactly Flaubert's method through which he achieved a singular poetic effect. End quote. I'm going to give critic James Wood the last word on Flaubert's legacy. Here's a beautiful quote from Mr. Wood. Quote, Novelists should thank Flaubert the way poets thank spring. It all begins again with him. There really is a time before Flaubert and a time after him. Flaubert decisively established what most readers and writers think of as modern realist narration, and his influence is almost too familiar to be visible. We hardly remark of good prose that it favors the telling and brilliant detail, that it privileges a high degree of visual noticing, that it maintains an unsentimental composure and knows how to withdraw like a good valet from superfluous commentary, that it judges good and bad neutrally, that it seeks out the truth even at the cost of repelling us, and that the author's fingerprints on all this are paradoxically traceable but not visible. 
You can find some of this in Defoe or Austin or Balzac, but not all of it until Flaubert. Okay, there we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Flaubert. What about podcasters? Should they be thanking Flaubert? How come you didn't mention any podcasters, James Wood? Ah, well, my thanks to Flaubert. I got through all this without mentioning Julian Barnes somehow, didn't I? Although, if you're my age, you probably encountered his book, Flaubert's Parrot, somewhere along the way, which is an entertaining and diverting little book. And I didn't mention that Karl Marx's daughter translated Madame Bovary, with that book coming out in 1886, the same year as the publication of Das Kapital. No wonder the Chinese authorities had no problem letting me read Madame Bovary, even as their censors were eliminating other books left and right. Dickens, Flaubert, the problems of the bourgeoisie and the capitalist system... Have at it, young traveler. Let us know how it goes, dear comrade. It went pretty well. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>